Hello and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. New episodes are released every second Monday. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts to remain updated. If you want to be in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sound Moment page on Facebook, and you can email me directly at pat at soundofthemoment.com. This show will always be free to download and listen to, but if you do feel like supporting me and helping cover the costs of production and hosting, you can make monthly or one-off donations at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment. Many thanks to those of you who have already done so. This is episode number 36 for the 18th of March 2019. My guest is the arranger, composer, and guitarist Alistair Pickering. This is a slightly different episode for the show as Alistair is uh, mostly on to discuss a documentary that he produced about the Amsterdam jazz scene. It's called Red Light Solo. Before our conversation, I will play you some of his music. This is a live recording, so you'll have to forgive the audio quality a little bit. It's an arrangement he made for drummer Enea Bassana and a Swiss ensemble called the United Soloists Orchestra. And the piece is called Greatness of Things.
guitarist, composer, and uh, arranger, and for today's purposes, film producer, Alistair Pickering, is my guest. Uh, Ali, thanks for being here. Thank you. Cool. Uh, I always like to begin the show by uh, asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit, tell people a bit about who you are, what you do, where you come from, all of that kind of general stuff, so that people have an idea a bit about um, yeah, who I'm talking to. Yeah, so I'm um, a fourth-year arranging student at the Conservatory of Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I moved here when I was um, 18 from from Blackpool in the northwest of England. Yeah, um, and I'm uh, yeah. In the four years be, I've been here, I've been fortunate enough to be able to write for um, the several conservatory big bands, uh, some orchestras in Amsterdam, and uh, in the more recent um, more recent months, um, some orchestras outside, so orchestras and big bands outside of the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, which is kind of the, the direction I'm, I'm going in musically. Um, mm-hmm. And I also play guitar uh, in and, and also write for a big band called the Amsterdam Funk Orchestra, yeah. led by Ephraim Trujillo. Yeah, Ephraim has been on the show and talked about that uh, a bit previously so that yeah. people will re- recognize that, I suppose. Um, cool. So, um, I mean, later we'll get into uh, the like talking about this documentary that you you helped bring to life but yep. first i want to i want to talk a bit about you and specifically the idea of be like studying jazz composition and arranging like what is it that made you decide to do that i feel like it's quite common for that to become an extension of like okay i'm a performer and i want to write for an ensemble because yeah. i want to perform my music kind of thing and because nowadays it's kind of expected that hey you have to write original music to get a gig kind of thing right yeah. um but to approach that from the standpoint of like, I'm gonna write and I'm gonna study writing specifically. Like, what is it? Yeah, it it, it was a pretty long process for me to actually find this as a direction because I played guitar for, or you could say, did music for for many years without mm-hmm. really having a clear direction of what it was I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, I kind of have a story actually of of how this this came came to be um, because when I was leaving high school so when I was around 16 uh, I started to look at universities and conservatories mm-hmm. um, and and really take seriously the idea of, of you know taking it to the next level because I'd been playing guitar in in bands and pub bands in the UK and and you know mostly kind of funk music and the occasional jazz gig there wasn't a huge jazz scene in, in my town yeah uh, the only kind of barrier I had was that I didn't know any anything about music theory couldn't read couldn't write anything beyond what I could play was really not something I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of, well, my parents insisted I studied theory because they said, you're not going to be able to do this unless you do. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the start of this this direction because when I, my kind of uh, change into this direction, when I started to study theory, I really started to listen to classical music because mm-hmm. um, you kind of have to because a, a lot of what you study is, is from... It's from that that kind of world, um, yeah. which was the first time I'd listened to classical music, and something. It was almost an overnight click. Something just just changed, and I realized that when you're playing, or, or what you're playing, or one instrument even can contribute to a whole new world, and and the worlds created by the composers I was listening to, um, just kind of resonated with me really, and I kind of realized how much you can do um, with with music other than just soloing in a pop band. Yeah. And that changed my view on music completely. Um, so I started when I was playing guitar to really kind of think about the, the compositional 
uh, approach to playing and how I can really make a statement with it other than my kind of view before, which was, you know, slightly, I guess, a bit more insular and, and more about the guitar and less about the music. Mm-hmm. And because I played a lot of jazz music, that kind of got me interested in big band music um, and, and my interest in composition and, and arranging switched to jazz music and the music I was directly involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when I was about 17, for probably in the year before I came to the conservatory, actually, I... Um, I was lucky enough to study composition with uh, an American arranger called Richard Niles, okay. who's predominantly a pop arranger. He's worked with Paul McCartney and the Pet Shop Boys and Grace Jones and a lot of people like this. Um, and he he was really instrumental in kind of being able to tap into my interest in, in classical music and, and this type of composition, kind of solid composition, you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and also what I was doing with jazz music and being able to kind of fuse them and, and figure out you know, where I can take this. Uh, and he said, because of that and because of my interest in this, um, and the ca- we actually had a very similar interest in, in arranging um, taste-wise, uh, mm-hmm. he suggested I study composition and not uh, not guitar, because he could see this was, I think, something I could probably do more with than just, just being a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And that was really what made me want to look for this course in particular, um, and then actually finding the Conservatory of Amsterdam was a completely different, uh, completely different uh, voyage, you could say. Yeah. I had a few other conservatories in the UK lined up, um, mm-hmm. and also an audition at the the what the name Prince Klaus Conservatory in, in Groningen. Oh, in, in Groningen, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so that was actually just the start. Yeah, uh, that that opened a lot of doors and took a while to figure out which one to go through. Actually, but so what? Like, what was the the why did you decide to come to the Netherlands, I suppose, in the end? Yeah, so part, well, part of me has always wanted to, to travel, actually. I've always had this kind of wanderlust in size. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, there was just, part of me always, it didn't really matter what barriers were in there. I just wanted to kind of see the world. Yeah. Um, and being able to combine that with studying was very, you know, attractive and appealing. And a lot more people nowadays are doing that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, practically speaking, um, it's actually a lot cheaper in the UK. And that's true, yeah. And um, I feel know, like that was part of my decision as well. Yeah, right. Um, so that was a big part of it. Also, from my parents' perspective, they were that, they liked that idea. Yeah, you can take a basically a digit off the price of Pretty much, fees, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also the jazz scene in, in the Netherlands, um, I very quickly discovered is is really different to the UK. Um, Maybe because the Netherlands is smaller, everything is closer and and all the stuff that's going on is a lot easier to kind of access. Because Mm -hmm. I mean, the Randstad, for example, the four biggest cities, 40 minutes of each other. I mean, that's just amazing how how, uh, linked everything is. Yeah, And and you really don't have the same, um, it's just not as vibrant in the UK that Justine I found. And because Mm. the country is a bit bigger, it is a a little more spread out. Yeah. And to really kind of, I think the well, the biggest scene is in London, obviously, because yeah. it's the capital city. And personally, I'm I'm not that it's it's I don't know I, I'm not a, a massive fan of of the city. Sorry to mm-hmm. upset anyone who who lives there, but it's you know not my kind of vibe. It's too <laughs> yeah, big okay. and, and and manic, and yeah. I really kind of like the 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 atmosphere of, of Amsterdam and, and Dutch cities yeah. better. It suits me personally. Sure. Yeah. And so what? Um, I'm always interested in what the 
and this is kind of the boring question, right? But um, what are the actual opportunities for somebody doing what you do? Yeah. Uh, I mean, right now, obviously, you're, you're still studying, so that's a thing, but you're obviously already starting to work with various ensembles and stuff. But like what, uh, like I said before, like it always feels to me like people often get into writing music because they want to feature themselves as a performer. And, and right. we've got to a point where we think, well, like performing is kind of the only lucrative side of jazz music anymore. Like there's no such thing as selling records. There's no such thing as, you know, all that kind of stuff has become much more difficult. And so everybody's kind of finding what is the way that I get a gig? Yeah. Um, and what I, I guess, what does that look like for you? Like what are the, I suppose there are still quite a few ensembles that exist out there, but. Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, when I first came here, that <laughs> that wasn't a question I'd considered too too much. I was still in the kind of, Almost defining your feet phase, where the thing itself is is such a wonder. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of the most important things this probably goes for anyone, but like whatever your profession is, um, is knowing people. Mm-hmm. And actually, my two biggest projects of the past year have been almost complete flukes that I got it, that I got them. Um, I'm so one. I was uh, about a year ago. I wrote for an orchestra in Switzerland called mm-hmm. the United Soloists Orchestra. Yeah. And I'm currently writing again for them, doing some arranging. And mm-hmm. the the gig I had last year was arranging music written by a fellow student of mine, Anea Bassana. Mm-hmm. And basically he had he's from the Ghana, which is where the orchestra is yeah. in Switzerland. He had a gig with the orchestra, but his music wasn't uh it was small band music, so he needed an arranger. Yeah. And I just happened to ask him to sub for a rehearsal I had one day. And that was the first time we'd met because mm-hmm. we're in different years. We different sides of the school separately. Um, and I told him I was an arranging student. He just said, well, I have a gig with an orchestra and I need this. <laughs> it, and, yeah. and I was like, and, and that, actually at that point I hadn't done much orchestral arranging, but mm. I wasn't going to say no. Yeah, sure. Um, so that that's how that came about. And, and I've since uh, made contact with the conductor and a couple of people in the orchestra. And that's now the start Um of hopefully a, a, a quite long-term writing uh, partnership there. Yeah. And my other main project is um, also an orchestration project uh, with several composers who, uh, video game composers, who wrote for the, the Commodore 64 back in the, the 80s. Oh, yeah. In the 90s. Cool. And this this is one of these that every every month I was involved in this, it just became bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, and basically it's, it's a live concert with a, a symphony orchestra of mm-hmm. roughly about 80 people. Okay. So probably the biggest of the biggest. Yeah. Uh, all Commodore music, all Commodore theme tunes, all mm-hmm. suites from the video games, uh, but orchestrated. Yeah. And the guys who wrote the music originally are great composers and that, and they can arrange the music, but when it comes to the orchestration, um, that's where they kind of needed someone to come in and perfect yeah. everything and sometimes rewrite everything mm-hmm. and make it concert playable. Yeah. Sure. And I got into that because I won an, a, an arranging competition uh, that was held by the Ricciotti Ensemble. Okay. Great street on, uh, street orchestra in yeah. the Netherlands. And every two years they have an arranging competition. Mm-hmm. So always got a, a really crazy theme. You've got to arrange, in this case, it was a video game theme tune yeah. uh, from another Commodore composer, mm-hmm. uh, Jeroen Tell, the Dutch composer. And yeah. uh, because my arrangement of Overlord won this, we made contact and he's one of those guys who's always on. He's always ready to go. So sometimes he's kind of hard to keep up with, okay. as I found out very quickly. <laughs> we started exchanging emails, and then he started putting me in like multi, uh, multi-person emails with people. Okay. I just he was like, "Yeah, Chris, 
he's a sound designer, meet Ali, say hey, and that was it. And a yeah, lot of okay. the guys he was introducing me to were the guys in this project, so Rob yeah. Hubbard and Chris Abbott. Um, and I had no idea who they were, and they were like, well, we've heard you're good at orchestration, would you like to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, when I got the phone call, I was actually in Lugano rehearsing with the orchestra. I was like, yeah. well, I've got to go, what, what exactly is this? And, and I didn't know them from the music, because yeah. it was pre-my generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was so all happening so fast that within about three weeks, I had these two projects mm. on the go. Yeah. Um, and the, the Commodore project, to actually finish all the music, took about six or seven months. Mm-hmm. And then you have to make concert scores and send them to, con- to the conductor and, and really perfect them, which is the process we're in now. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, the two biggest kind of gigs I've had since moving here have been complete chance, but I've had to kind of be, you know, prepared enough and, and ready enough to take them on and show that I can can do that. Um, yeah, of course. It's always a matter of like, it, it, we can talk about things being happenstance and being lucky, but you kind of got to be ready to seize the... Yeah, because I could have quite easily gone in there and had no idea how to write for the orchestra properly and yeah. like with little things, like I had to know about like transposing instruments, for example, mm-hmm. or the yeah. ranges of instruments or how to transfer a piece of music that has absolutely no dynamics yeah. for five minutes to yeah. a, a suite of music that's got to have flow. Um, I mean, just yeah. so how how exactly do you do that? I mean, with I I don't know what the I don't know what the actual technical specs of the Commodore sixty four were, but presumably mm. we're dealing with like what four or five channels of sound max. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, how do you, how does that become an eighty piece orchestra uh, thing? Yeah, it's 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 a challenge at first. Sometimes some pieces harder than others. Um, Usually what happens is I'll be sent a Sibelius file with kind of the blueprint of yeah. what uh, either Chris, Chris Abbott or Rob mm-hmm. Robert would want. And then I'll usually listen to the playback with just the MIDI. Mm-hmm. And the score is like usually, uh, that's going to have to change anyway. But yeah. just listening to the playback, I can hear what they had in mind. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of informs the way I would go about orchestrating it. So if I can hear kind of, say fast runs in some woodwinds, melody on horns, harmony in strings, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be orchestrated the most perf- in the most perfect way, and it could, sometimes it's completely all over the place, um, yeah. but the idea is there, and then yeah. that will inform kind of what will happen. And then, and then also, the kind of the weight of the piece, it, does it start loud? Is everyone playing in the start? Uh, where are the quiet bits? Where are the loud bits? Um, almost, almost like a symphony, you kind of have to phrase it in, in the way that everything has a flow and, 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 and weight and there's a large part and small parts and there's more instruments here and, and less here and you kind of gradually chisel away and uh, add it and then you, you have this this piece um, yeah. which should resemble the original but obviously it's going to be completely elevating the original to levels mm-hmm. that hopefully the audience and the guys who have been following this music will <laughs> will appreciate. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I guess maybe it's a strange question but like... That sounds to me like it's quite far outside of the jazz idiom. Oh, it is. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you like? I mean, I suppose obviously you'll take the opportunities as they come, right? And 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 it's interesting to me that you would study like jazz composition, so yep. to speak, and jazz arranging, and like that. Obviously, there's probably much more of a market out there for a much broader, like wider uh, sure. uh, aesthetic. Like how? Um, I suppose like do do you still? expect to dive deep into jazz stuff or are you are you kind of more interested in just like exploring whatever comes your way well to, generally um also this goes for when i was playing just playing guitar before i really got into composition my it, it was for jazz i i was never kind of a, a straight ahead jazzer 
mm-hmm. and I, I never really, you know, kind of delved into it exclusively. Um, and what I what I kind of loved about it the most was that you could take elements from it and apply it to other things. I guess. Um, I mean, for example, my favorite group is Steely Dan, and what I yeah. love about them was <laughs> that the harmony was jazz, but the everything else was funk, pop, R and B, and that kind of hybrid for me is really what I like about jazz that you can take so many great elements from it and apply it to different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, with, um, with the writing for the Swiss orchestra, um, if I was exclusively a classical, classically trained orchestrator, because the, the, the first two pieces I did for Anea and the piece I'm actually writing now for them, which is an arrangement of Spain by Chick Corea, I have to be quite familiar with um, jazz music to understand how to treat that orchestrally, yeah. as well as classical music to, to know how to treat it orchestrally. Yeah. Um, so, and also classical music really wasn't my background so for me to go in and study that in such depth I would probably be starting at a much lower level than, than jazz arranging yeah. where at the conservatory I can do both because mm-hmm. all the teachers can teach big band and symphonic writing Yeah. Uh, so for me that was kind of um, the best way to get both mm-hmm. and be able to study and practice and write for big band music uh, and at the time when I first came here um I thought hopefully get maybe some experience writing for orchestral music. I didn't think that because in, I'm in the jazz department, I thought, well, I'll make Sibelius files and maybe one day they'll play it. Yeah. Um, it was almost a dream that I have these projects now. Mm-hmm. It's almost flipped, you know? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, I suppose maybe this, the, the, this is maybe another obvious uh, line of inquiry, but... Uh, what we've discussed until now is most mostly like deals with the idea of arranging and orchestrating pe- like other people's music. Yep. Like what what place does your own music have in all this? Like what? Um, I mean, I suppose what would your what would your music look like? How what does your music look like? I suppose. And, yeah. and how interested are you in in um, in finding a space for that? I suppose. Yeah, it's it's a tough one because the gigs I have don't. It's it, yeah. It's funny because I I write a lot. I write a lot of orig- original music, probably mm-hmm. more than actually arranging other music. Um, but you know, the gigs I have right now, the work I have right now, doesn't really require a need for that. Um, I guess with the funk orchestra, we play quite a few of my tunes. Okay, that's a good outlet. Um, and also, it's completely different to, to jazz music. So it's you can kind of have you can kind of uh, yeah write more simplicity, uh, more simple tunes, and then kind of. Uh, bring out the color in, in pure melody in, in, in this band groove, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't, for example, get a chance to do much with, with jazz music because it's, it's just a completely different world. Yeah. Um, so that's also a nice kind of nice way of, uh, yeah, practicing something different. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I have a lot of music that I, I just kind of don't get time to, uh, I guess, pursue so much um, because I have, I just have all the projects that need that take yeah. time and, uh, yeah, that's that's the way it is. But so, what, how would you define the aesthetic of that stuff? Like, uh, obviously, like as an orchestra and arranger, you're yeah. putting your aesthetic somewhat to the side to mm. lend your kind of expertise to somebody else's thing, and obviously, you find the space in there to like insert a bit of yourself into the music. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but I'm interested in what what is the like if 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 you're given a blank canvas, what what would you paint? I suppose. Um. What were my kind of stylistic preferences? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's for orchestration and, and arranging, if I'm doing big band or something else, um, or even film music, actually, with um, 
the, the director of the documentary, Ryan, um, mm-hmm. is also a place I can I can kind of you know hone a kind of uh, color for myself. Yeah. Um, the the advantage is if you, the the amount of music you study um, at the conservatory, both big band and classical, well, jazz and classical music mm-hmm. generally, you can kind of pick bits from your favorite writers. And with big band music, I'm particularly influenced by Bob Mincer and Bob Brookmeyer. Okay, yeah. And of the features of their music, harmonically and Bob Brookmeyer structurally, his his way of approaching music is very classical. And harmonically, mm-hmm. he has a lot of uh, interesting approaches to things. Yeah. Um, you can kind of study those and and really pick out the principles of what he does and then apply it to your own arrangements and your own music. Uh, and with classical music, it also is, I mean, the thing is, there's so much classical music. It's where do you begin? Yeah, of course. Uh, and with the orchestration classes that we had at the conservatory, um, it really gave me a chance to, to study in depth uh, everything from from Mozart to Prokofiev and, and mm-hmm. think, um, what do I like? What sounds do I like if I'm doing an orchestration? Uh, so I'm really thinking about that and, and kind of taking out uh, flavors of, of my favorite composers like Shostakovich and Ravel and, and Holst and Debussy in particular yeah. uh, for orchestral textures uh, and finding a way of working them into to this music um, and yeah for jazz music also the same uh, kind of the straight ahead jazz musicians would be Bob Brookmeyer and Bob Mincer and maybe perhaps Maria Schneider also for more mm-hmm. modern music yeah. uh, and then also a lot of fusion like Snarky Puppy and the Yellow Jackets uh, mm-hmm. big influence um, with kind of compositional aspects and how to develop music especially mm-hmm. I think is that also very important yeah cool um i mean before we get to the 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 meat of the matter with the documentary i I do want to finally like talk a bit about yourself as an instrumentalist like are you still finding space for the guitar and yeah it's 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 hard sometimes uh but the good thing with playing in the funk orchestra is that it does keep me on my feet Mm -hmm. um because i have to be uh we have a lot of new music which i always have to be prepared for mm-hmm. um a varying difficulty i found we have a project coming up soon with uh, anton Hartmut. yeah uh we're playing at the the Hoist jazz festival mm-hmm. um so we have our own repertoire for that and then we also have some of his music which frame has arranged yeah and a couple of a couple of the tunes it's just about getting kind of a groove down and, and making it sound easy mm. like we're you know like we're very comfortable in that and then there's a, some some of the tunes we have uh, for those of you who know his music, if you know the tune Machacho, it's a nightmare to play because mm-hmm. it's in yeah. three, four time in groups of six. Mm-hmm. Uh, the riff is always on offbeat, semi-quaver offbeat. Yeah. Um, and technically that for everybody has been really challenging. So if I, you know, if you've got to be on top of this. Yeah. Uh, so I always try and find time each day to play, even if it's just 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I always kind of have individual things that I can work on and, and things that I kind of set myself, um, even even if I just have the one concert, because I know that you know, it's my instrument, I need to yeah, sure. need to nurture that. But so do you expect to, like, in the future, uh, like, try to feature yourself as an instrumentalist? Or are you of the opinion of, like, okay, maybe other people are better qualified to do this and you're more interested in being behind the scenes, so to speak, with that stuff? Yeah, perhaps. But on the other hand, I know that I can do, I know what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I've kind of got a... Uh, well, I guess going, since coming to the conservatory, you kind of realize what um, there's a lot of people who play guitar, and there's a lot of people who can play guitar better than me. Yeah. Um, but I know what I can do. I can my, where my area is kind of mm-hmm. this kind of more, more fusion esque funk area. Uh, yeah. I've played the most of this, and I can do that the most. And whenever the opportunity arises, I'll I'll, 
I'll take that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm also gonna follow the um, follow the lead wherever it goes. And at, at the moment, it, it's I'm 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 working more with with writing and arranging, uh, and I'm happy to do that. I'm, yeah. But if if I had more gigs and I was playing guitar, then that would be that would be great too. Yes, yeah. I also love to do this. So. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um, so uh, to to move on to uh, talking about the documentary, I mean, they keep hearing us mention it, but the like uh, you. Uh, are credited as a producer on this documentary yep. called Red Light Solo. Um, can you tell me a bit about the project? I don't expect that people will necessarily have seen it, but if they do want to see it, it's on YouTube, so they should check it out. Yep. And I expect that after uh, hearing us talk about it, they they may well uh, want to do that. Uh, can Can you tell me a bit about how it came about, what the, yeah. the story of it is and stuff? So I've been working with the, the director, Ryan, uh, Ryan Smith, for about four or five years now. We mm-hmm. met uh, at college in the UK. And at the time I was studying music, he was studying media. Um, and we had to make a music video. And mm-hmm. first time we worked together, it, it just clicked. Um, we knew there was something there. So uh, since since then, he's made several short films, uh, one feature film. I've written the music for them. Mm-hmm. And he always said that he'd wanted to do, um, well, I should say, when I came to study in Amsterdam, he went to study in London. So yeah. we both moved to bigger cities and he... We kept in contact, and he'd always wanted to to do more music related uh, features, whether it was a music video or a documentary. Mm-hmm. And about a year ago, um, we were talking about this, and I mentioned that there could be an opportunity in June during the Red Light Jazz Festival to come mm-hmm. over because there will be a lot of gigs. Yeah. Um, so I started to make some inquiries, and uh, I put a post a po- uh, post on Facebook asking if anyone had a gig in this period and would anyone uh, like to like to have the gig filmed. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people replied uh, mm-hmm. more than we expected and we had to kind of narrow it down to the guys who now are in the documentary. Yeah. And uh, pretty quickly it became... Um, it became a plan that he was going to come over for a week. Yeah. In fact, we had to actually add two days because there were so many things going on. <laughs> um and we were going to record this and the th- it was kind of funny because I'm not a filmmaker so logistically I was thinking yep that gig that gig next day that gig three day three gigs in a day great yeah and I kind of got a lot of things on without thinking about how we were actually going to do this so yeah. a few of the days we were running around from running around the city mm-hmm. filming one gig and then shooting off to the next one yeah um so yeah that's that was kind of my role I was organizing everything and, and figuring out the the plan of how we were going to film everything uh and sometimes taking taking the camera and, and filming um and then also in the post-production uh assisting with kind of which bits we were going to use which bits we weren't going to use which extra clips we were going to use to try and show uh what was going on at the gig other than the concerts to give a real kind of like you're in the moment kind of yeah. thing like an intimate look at the, mm-hmm. at the jazz scene which is kind of the tag of the film yeah yeah it really feels like kind of more of a more of a like just kind of mood, uh, kind of uh, more of like a mood piece than than actual. Like, there's obviously no like narrative to the thing. It's just yeah. a series of hey, these are a bunch of venues in in a city. These are a bunch of bands in a city. Um, was that always the idea? Like, do you think he? Yeah, that was really Ryan's concept with this was mm-hmm. to have um, even the little details. Like when he whenever he interviewed anyone, it was always a really close up. Uh, of their face, yeah. 
And yeah, there was no narration. It was very much like you're just kind of walking into the life of Amsterdam in the middle of a jazz festival yeah. and, and getting to see what's happening. Yeah. Um, so almost like a really normal uh, film, no kind of big grandeur approach mm. to it. Um, just kind of like you're being introduced to what happens in, in a week in, yeah. in Amsterdam. Uh, I'm interested in like hearing how you how you picked. I suppose there's like a logistical aspect of like, okay, well, this is what is possible for us to actually film. But sure. how did you pick the people that you decided to film, and and maybe you want to talk about them uh, individually a bit? Yeah, yeah, we wanted to keep a kind of theme generally. So um, I know there was the jazz festival going on, but naturally with it being Amsterdam, there was a lot of concerts going yeah. on unrelated to that. So um, we did get a couple of, of requests of things that didn't really fit in. Uh, stylistically to to the rest of the music mm-hmm. um, so that was one thing that kind of uh, determined how we were going to pick uh, each artist yeah. keeping keeping a, a kind of house style if you will mm-hmm. um, also also logistically was one of the things um, because there was a couple of gigs that were so far away from one another <laughs> that we couldn't have actually yeah. done it uh, although it was a gig happening happening at the same time mm-hmm. um, and then also Maybe the artist in particular, is it really um, going to be interesting for the viewer? That sounds a bit cruel, but is it going to be interesting for the viewer to have this in in a documentary? Mm-hmm. Um, is it going to be able to kind of, you know, cause interest if it's in the documentary, if it's, say, uh, a jam session or a gig with, um, like, like with the Funk Orchestra, for example, where it was... Yeah. Uh, completely chaotic and there was a real vibe to that place or is it going to be a jam session in a place that um, you know might not be so um, you know vibrant in comparison to yeah. uh, just making a choice over one venue or the other which mm-hmm. not that there was a jam session just speaking hypothetically no sure but it's interesting because obviously what like the the image that it gives of the scene is uh, is somewhat curated in that sense, right? Like there's oh, yeah, a, yeah. which is really interesting to me because it's like, oh yeah, I recognize this, but at the same time, I see like aspects of that you could have made like the polar opposite of a film of this, you know, by going yeah. to a bunch of other stuff. So yeah. I, I, it's interesting that that was the choice that was made, I suppose. Also for the energy, it was it was pretty important because yeah. if you kind of look at the 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 documentary, it starts off pretty high energy with with Guy Salomon mm-hmm. and ends high energy with. Um, the with uh, Eric or uh, mm-hmm. Stephenson's non yeah. So we really wa- we knew that was the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. um, just from planning the dates. That yeah. was going to be the first gig and the last gig, and then in between, we really didn't kind of want to have part of it which would be forgettable mm-hmm. and part of it which would be memorable. It yeah. kind of had to be uh, very consistent for us. Mm-hmm. Do I take it from what you just said that it was like it is also shown chronologically? Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, yeah. So the first gig that we uh, recorded, um, I remember Ryan arrived on the Friday night and then Saturday morning, first thing we went to the Blue Note Conservatory mm-hmm. and filmed Guy Salomon. Yeah. Uh, that day was hectic because we filmed Guy Salomon and then we had to go to, uh, I had a gig that afternoon with the Funk Orchestra in yeah. the Salvation Army Hall in mm-hmm. the Red Light District, yeah. which was probably the warmest gig I think I've ever played. It was the middle of June <laughs> and it was a pretty small hall. There was 18 of us on stage. About 200 people came in the door and the doors were open so more people kept coming in um, and it was murder. And <laughs> we had a guest actually on this gig, uh, Joseph Bowie, the trombone player, which mm-hmm. brought even more people in. Yeah. Uh, and the, the camera angle on that one, um, fun fun fact, um, was the only camera angle Ryan could, could 
shoot because there were so many people. He couldn't actually <laughs> yeah. move for the whole concert. So you're literally seeing him in one position for about, I think, the hour and a half concert was the, yeah. the span of that. Uh, and then in the evening we went to Skek, which I think was even busier and also had the same thing with not being able to move to yeah. shoot a different camera angle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. And so, yeah, I'm interested in what the process is, uh, like in terms of, I mean, obviously you you say that after, after the event, then you had a whole thing together and you're somewhat involved in that idea. But yeah. uh, what what happens next then with releasing a film like this? Like, do you, how... How involved were you with the rest of the process? I suppose there's like getting it into uh, film festivals and yeah. all that kind of stuff. To be honest, this um, once it was done and once the the, edi- the editing was done, um, the rest of it was up to Ryan. So yeah. that was totally totally his um, his thing. Um, mm-hmm. There was a process period of about three or four months where we were uh, entering the film and well, when Ryan was entering the film into. Um, every film festival he could find, yeah. uh, as always, just as many, and then you hope for the best. Yeah. Uh, and then the problem was that we we had it done, and everyone knew we had it done, and we wanted to release it, but when you enter it into a film festival, you have to wait until you get the results back. And yeah. there was a lot of film festivals that we were waiting for, so we couldn't actually release it until just a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. actually. Um, so there was a good period uh, until about January when, when everything was finished and done and dusted, but we were just waiting to find out um, if we were nominated, if we won, uh, yeah. or you know, finding out if we got nothing at all, yeah. Um, so that was a pretty long process that uh, brought back five awards actually, which yeah, was, which was nice. All yeah, yeah. best documentary features and uh, one award for for best uh, no budget spirit, which is mm-hmm. was a nice one to get. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what uh, like what kind of a lifespan does a film like this have? Like at this point, uh, I mean, like I mentioned at the beginning, like it's available on YouTube. People can go and check it out there. Um, is there any? Uh, yeah, what what happens next? Does anything happen next, I suppose? Yeah, well, the thing is with a film like this, um, because it shows off so much of, of Amsterdam, um, and it wasn't a one-time thing, all the bands are still active and, and are still playing, um, yeah. using it obviously as promotional material for each of the person, mm-hmm. uh, each of the artists involved, um, is a plus side. Um, but also as as a kind of uh, almost a memento of, of about the Amsterdam jazz scene at that point, um, yeah. and also because all the artists were young, everyone was up and coming at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it does serve as a great kind of insight into what's happening in Amsterdam at this point, um, and I, I think it represents much more than just that one week. I mean, this is for anyone who lives in Amsterdam will know that a lot of Amsterdam uh, nights are like the nights in the documentary it's a very yeah. vibrant place to be um and represents a lot of the the music in amsterdam not just the jazz scene mm-hmm. um so i think a film like this can really uh open a door into a whole area of society which can be used to represent a kind of a period at least kind of yeah. when from looking back on this it'll be when i'm at when i was at the conservatory when i was in amsterdam at that time this was what it was like this one week is opening the door to a number of years for example yeah no, it's it's true. It's cool. It feels like there's a. I feel like there's a similar nature to it to what I'm doing here with my podcast, which is like trying to document what people are up to. And who knows? Maybe ten years from now, we'll look back on things and be like, "Wow, uh, yeah. like that band and that band were featured in this documentary that we just shot with one camera and right, yeah. no budget, and we ran to their gig, and then you know now look where they are, kind of thing." Yeah. So. Um, can you maybe list off uh, who are the people that are featured in the documentary just for the purposes of people at home so that they 
Yeah, uh, so I'll try and I'll try and do it in, in chronological order. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the documentary begins with the uh, Guy Solomon sextet. Yep. Uh, this was at the Blue Note in the conservatory, and then the next concert was the Amsterdam Funk Orchestra yeah. at the Salvation Army Hall, featuring Joseph Bowie. And then in the evening there was uh, Laura and Strings with mm-hmm. Laura Docha, William Barrett and uh, Chisidema on guitar. Yeah. And I think this one actually goes into, Ryan kept recording afterwards and there was a jam session, yeah. which is nice. Mm-hmm. In, in Skek, if anyone's been there, it's, you know, you can't swing a cat in Skek yeah. and we <laughs> certainly couldn't that night. Um, and then the next concert was, I think, I think the next recording was the, with uh, the Enting Low band. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a really cool project, recording music for her uh, for her video game that she's making with her her boyfriend, who's mm-hmm. a, a video game programmer. Yeah, uh, soon to be coming out on iOS and Android, I believe. Okay. Um, then what did we record after that? There was there was a gig I don't think I could make because I had a rehearsal um, at the Bim House, and it was uh, Ikido with yeah. uh, William Mofandados. Yeah, yeah, William Barrett, Mofandados, Chaisidema, uh, and Tim Hanekes. Um yeah, and Ryan went went along to the BIM house and filmed this. Uh, and then the following day... Oh, this is hard. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't <laughs> mean to, to put you on the everything. spot. Um, um, yeah, there was so much. Um, I think Val, I think Valvatronic might have been the next one. Valvatronic mm-hmm. Brass Band. Um, I certainly can't remember everyone in that band. No, uh, there's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> they were also featuring a bunch of subs that day, uh, according to... Right, the, yeah, yeah, so the lineup has changed quite drastically yeah. since then. Um, and then finally, I think there was... I say finally, quite hesitantly. Um, no, Enea is also there, right? That was uh, right, yeah. Before yeah. before Valtronic, there was Enea, Enea Bassana recording his album, actually. Um, I have to... I mean, uh, sorry, this is maybe a yeah. terrible remark to sorry. make, but I'm, I, was, I was fascinated by that, uh, that whole section because... He's filming stuff, and you and the audio is from the camera, and you're filming in a studio with like isolated stuff, and you can't hear half of the band. Uh, was uh, there no. any chance of getting the audio from the actual recording? Was it too late to do that? The, yeah, the problem, the, the time frames really kind of didn't uh, bode well for this because we we had to make the film and finish it and send it off to festivals. Yeah, of way course, before yeah. Um, the fin- was anything writing, but yeah. the finished mixes were yeah um, were done for. Um, for Renee's album, yeah. so it was kind of just an unfortunate uh, lapse of times, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's also an interesting point, right? Like the the I feel like the uh, not as a criticism, but like the fact that the audio quality is at times like clearly kind of inferior to what you would expect from like a high budget super it also gives yeah. that different like lively vibe to it right so yeah yeah it it actually has a kind of i don't know if if charm is the right word but it kind of adds to to what the the concept of the film yeah. is I, I think, think it does i mean like somewhat. if you look at their the the funk orchestra uh, moment it's like yeah i can imagine that in that hall with 200 people you probably like would have heard it in a very different way anyway than yeah. I mean, I couldn't I, if you could hear anything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just remember having I had a I had earplugs in for this gig, and I still had ringing at the end of it. I mean, it was it was so loud mm. and yeah, it was it was a great gig energy wise. It was it was completely crazy. I don't think I've ever played a concert like this, but 
what you see on the documentary is exactly like how it was how yeah. it was there. I remember, um, and also Laura and Strings in Skek was exactly the same. It's just everyone yeah. crammed in on a Saturday night, yeah. boiling hot temperature. Yeah, um, yeah, very very realistic. <laughs> cool. Um, I, I mean, I guess we're kind of reaching the end of this conversation. Is there any other stuff that you want to mention like that people should look out for? I suppose like anything uh, from Ryan people should be looking for or anything from you that, that's Yeah, you, you can actually find several of, of Ryan's productions um, on on YouTube. The first, I'll go from first to last actually, mm-hmm. the first film that we did back in college, if anyone wants to see the really old one, uh, you can see White Summer under mm-hmm. his YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, we made a horror movie, a short horror movie called Bait. Okay. which I recorded with uh, a string quintet at the conservatory. And his most recent film, his most recent feature film, I should say, uh, Bright Eyes, which is kind of a, a futuristic um, take on like, kind of like a 1984 meets Blade Runner kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which also won an award for, for best soundtrack. I should okay. put that in there, which I wrote. Cool. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun doing this. It was the first time we'd really kind of delved into a purely electronic type of soundtrack mm-hmm. and also kind of electronic film uh like kind of world mm-hmm. um you can all find them on uh on his youtube channel yeah uh we're in the process of uh production and uh scoring and, and shooting for his next film called mm-hmm. slay the dragon which he's filming in our hometown okay which is a look at um a, a, also a feature film about uh the criminal underworld of uh you know the kind of Particularly tourist towns, mm-hmm. they may have you see the the image on the front, which is very nice and very appealing, and then there's always an underbelly to that. Yeah. Um, so this is what that film's going to be featuring about. It's going to be pretty dark, but it's going to be pretty pretty exciting to, okay. to be involved in this. I think. Cool. Uh, and finally, yeah, I always like to. Uh, I mean, I feel like there's been all kinds of recommendations for people that hopefully they will uh, go and check out. But I do always like to end by asking my guests to recommend something in particular they think uh, deserves some attention or that that they've found particularly inspiring lately so uh yeah i this week discovered um two albums uh from peter gabriel the mm-hmm. singer of genesis yeah uh that he recorded with uh an orchestra and the arranger is i forget his name new zealand arranger great arranger called john metcalf i think okay there's a very stylistic sound to this i would say it sounds very english but you can hear influences of i guess maybe steve reich and arvo part in this that take mm. the music to a completely new level okay. um and what I, I what i also like is that there's no band it's just orchestra and voice so it's very much like leaders also oh, yeah. um and there's two albums there's new blood and i think scratch my back is the other album okay uh, and he avoids actually playing some of his mega hits like uh, like sledgehammer so yeah. you get kind of more intimate looks at some songs that aren't always in his back or aren't always mentioned in his uh back catalog so that's on my on my playlist right now awesome uh ali thanks so much for being here thank you that was alistair pickering you can find links to the documentary red light solo at sandalmo.com many thanks to my fellow members of catro for providing the intro and outro music as always please subscribe to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts Leave a favorable review or rating in iTunes. That really is very helpful to gain new listeners. And do tell a friend if you know anybody who would like to listen to this kind of show. Go to patreon.com slash moment if you want to make a donation to help me keep this show up and running. Even the smallest amount is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much to those of you who already donate. 
You can reach me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can like the Sam the Moment page on Facebook, or you can email me directly at pat at samthemoment.com. To end the show, I'm going to play you some audio from the documentary itself. These are the opening moments, and the band featured is the Guy Salomon Sextet. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment. Describe jazz in one word. Describe jazz in one word. Yeah. Isn't that jazz, the word? Like a descriptive word. A descriptive word. I don't think I can... How much time do you have to think? <laughs> You're okay. Just say like jazz is and then whatever your word is. Jazz is uh, open ears, which is two words. Yeah. <laughs>